Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, we're going to talk about innovation and sustainable growth, and it's on everyone's mind, whether you're running a company or starting a small company or you're part of an emerging economy or you're trying to manage that emerging economy or you're just trying to manage your own life. And it turns out that our current solutions often compound the problem. So what I want to focus on today is what questions should we really be asking instead? My guest is Karen Dillon, and Karen has a long history of doing some fabulous editing work. She's the former editor of Harvard Business Review, and she is the co-author of three books with Clayton Christensen, including The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovations Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty, the Wall Street Journal Best Business Seller called Competing Against Luck, The Story of Innovation and Customer Choice. And in addition, the New York Times bestseller, How Will You Measure Your Life? Now, she's the author also of the Harvard Business Review Guide to Office Politics. So I will try to ask her a question about that one. And then she's hosted and written and done a ton of other things along the way. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Wanda. I'm glad to be here. I'm delighted to have you here. And I'll see if I can get my articulation a little straighter as we go forward. (laughs) All right. I want to start with this whole notion of innovation and the prosperity paradox. I cannot say that book, Prosperity Paradox book. So tell me about the start of this work. What problem were you really trying to solve and why? So this work uh, stems out of work that my two co-authors, Clayton Christensen, who is a Harvard Business School professor, and one of his former students, Afosa Ojimo, had been working on while Afosa was in his class and then actually stayed on to continue doing research. The basic idea was, what do we know about innovation that can help us solve some of the world's toughest problems? And as they were thinking about all the things that Clay had taught and talked about in class, and Asosa, who was actually originally from Nigeria, was thinking about how to apply the best thinking from that class, they together, and I joined them, came up with the uh, insight that uh, one of the problems that the world is constantly trying to solve is basically solving poverty. You know, we have so many impoverished countries around the world. The needle is not moving enough. And we, yet we spend billions and billions of dollars every year, well-intended dollars, to try to solve poverty. But yet we're not doing enough. And their primary insight, our book, our book focuses on this, is that trying to solve poverty is like putting a Band-Aid on a kind of constant gaping wound. It's never enough. You can cover it for a little while. It will still sort of seep out after that. What you need to do instead is to think of the other side of the coin. How do we generate prosperity? And so this book is attempting to answer that question. How do we stop focusing as, as, as well-intentioned as we might be on solving poverty? And how do we instead start creating prosperity so that can become its own engine and solve the underlying problem for the long term? Okay, I like the idea of it, but it does sound a tiny bit like semantics. You know, solving um, poverty versus generating prosperity. But I think it means a lot more than that. So, you know, kind of help me understand what this uh, generating prosperity is really all about. Sure. So I think of it this way. If we um, temporarily... Uh, flood millions of dollars of resources to a particular community to help them um, to build more. I'll give you an example from the book. What my co-author, Afosa, actually decided to raise money for his native Nigeria to build wells in communities that didn't have adequate running water. And to him, that seemed like a perfect solution. Poverty almost shows itself as lack of resources. So he raised money, hundreds of thousands of dollars from friends and family before he was doing this work uh, and created his own non-for-profit to go build wells in communities in Nigeria. And I'm sure there's nothing more satisfying than watching water gush out of a well for the first time uh, and create that opportunity for that community. But soon after he had raised the money and had the wells built, he got back home. He was living in America at the time. And the wells began to break down. 
And he realized from far away that simply sort of building wells and leaving them there with the resources that he had, but not make integrating them into a community that needed them, had a means to support them, had plans to keep them going, had, had funds to keep them going, was going to be a very short-term solution. So instead, the idea is you need to help a community inspire itself with innovations that create jobs, that, that sort of create the opportunity for education, that create better health care. All of these things become an engine for a community to, to get out of poverty and, and propel itself into prosperity. All right. I think I'm beginning to get the idea. It's the notion that a drop-in of one one thing is not going to lift a community into innovation, into growth, into prosperity. It's getting whatever you do integrated into the fabric of the community so it drives its own growth engine. Is that a reasonable statement? Yes, it's probably, yes, it is. It's probably, uh, it's, a con- it's a conversation about capitalism, but the potential of it. So instead of having uh, charitable and goodwilled um, drops is put into that community, the community can begin to solve its own problems because they are creating jobs. There are new, new industries are created, new jobs are created, new opportunities for people to get educated. That becomes part of the community and it's self-sustaining. It's not something that relies on outside money and intervention to solve itself. It, it's basically giving them the fire, you know, the fuel to, to keep their fire going versus one time lighting a fire and having it go out. Yeah. Okay, so do you have any examples of um, interventions that have generated this kind of prosperity? Well, I'll talk about, I mean, it's not an intervention, it's sort of the process of it happening. I'll talk about uh, America. If I um, described to you a community that had impoverished children who went to work, where people could barely afford to eat, where um, health codes were terrible and people died at a young age, children's lifespans were not long, you might think I'm talking about a third world economy. And in reality, I would be talking about America in the 1850s before so many industries took root and grew and created jobs and opportunities. So America is a great example. I'll just use Henry Ford as, as a simple example. So the idea that uh, creating what we call market-creating innovations, an innovation that makes a product affordable and accessible to a wide range of people, that can begin to generate what in this case was an industry. So Henry Ford took the idea of something that was elite. There were automobiles before that, but they were seen as only automobiles for rich people and creating factories that made them affordable and accessible for many people. With that came the jobs in the factory. With that came salaries for those people to, to begin contributing back to the economy. With that became, came the need for more infrastructure, for roads, for supplies, for trains to come. There were many, many things that were ripple effects of having identified and successfully created what became an industry, what we call a market-creating industry. You created a market where there really wasn't one before. America has many such such examples, and all of those together are what propelled us from really deep poverty to the the world's most prosperous nation that we are today. Okay. All right. I get that. That makes sense. I understand how that is. It's just hard to imagine how you go about creating, finding yet another market-creating industry. So are there principles, are there frameworks we need to be looking at to create this kind of real sustainable growth? Sure. So I, I guess the initial, um, the initial impetus isn't necessarily, I'm going to try to help this economy. The initial impetus should be, that should be a happy byproduct of it, but the initial impetus should be, you actually see a, a gap in the market. You see where people are struggling to accomplish something, to get something done, and you create an opportunity for them to do that better with a product or service. That's where the market creating in, uh, innovation comes in. And maybe a good more recent example to think about is mobile telephones in Africa. So 25, 30 years ago, there were not very many even landlines on the continent of Africa, and those landlines were exclusively used by sort of higher-end businesses and wealthy people. Uh, when an entrepreneur called Mo Ibrahim, who had been uh, head of technology at British Telecom, he's a, a native of Sudan originally, saw the opportunity across various countries in Africa to create mobile telephone networks, people thought he was crazy because there were instantly, you looked at the demographics and said, people can barely afford landlines. How are you going to get people to, a whole bunch of people to afford mobile telephones? They will never do that. But what Mo recognized was that people didn't have better alternatives. For, for most of those people, 
whom for whom a landline was completely out of out of price and access and affordability in every way. Their 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 ability to communicate with other people was limited to physical. I have to get to you. I have to send a message in some way. It might take days to do that. So the idea of finding a way to make mobile phones affordable and accessible through to a wide range of people through inexpensive mobile phone handsets and you know by purchasing minutes and things like that. He literally cracked open what is now one of the world's biggest markets for mobile telephones. He was able to start and grow and literally build the infrastructure for mobile telephone networks in various uh, countries in Africa in just a number of years and then sell the, the company that he had created for billions of dollars in a very short span of time. He recognized the struggle for which there was no good solution at the time, and he created a product and a service that, that people were willing to find money for because it was so important for them to be able to communicate better than they had been able to before. Right. So there's a market need there for sure. It's not solved by anything else that's within the reach of anybody else. And then it's being clever with creating some alternatives that become affordable and accessible because there were alternatives. They just weren't exactly affordable. So the initial impetus. Affordable and accessible. Yes. Sorry. Yes. So the initial impetus is about identifying a gap in the market that isn't served. All right. So that's the first principle. Are there other principles? Yes, so, so we, uh, we talk about the gap being coming out of seeing a struggle. I think that's really important because you may see a gap in the market where your product or service could be a little bit better than, this is a common mistake people make, a little bit better than what's offered there or a nice to have, but it's not something that people are actually struggling with and do not have good alternatives uh, to, compared to what you're offering to, to as an alternative choice. So when you identify a real pain point, they're struggling to accomplish something and you can then make a solution to that affordable and accessible, two of the primary principles of disruption, uh, you've begun to identify the wedge into that market. But the second piece of the puzzle is that a market creating innovation really has to be a whole a, a value proposition. You have to create a, a business model that actually makes sense so you can't necessarily take what works elsewhere, all its expenses, all the ways you deliver it uh, with the same anticipated profit model. You have to think of the, the business model from scratch. How am I going to make this make sense in this market, in this economy, with what I, what's the affordable and accessible opportunity or model I'm trying to offer? So the business model is really important to think through. What Mo Ibrahim did with, with the telephone company, with telecoms, was come up with things like using mobile, buying mobile minutes so people could buy minutes in small increments. They could put SIM cards in. They could buy inexpensive handsets. That may not have been the way. It wasn't the way that mobile telephones started, for example, in America. We went straight to expensive phones and mobile plans, but it was the way that it made it possible for many more people to have access to it and afford it. So the business plan is an essential part of it and making sure that that makes sense. Okay. This makes me think a little bit of things like Uber and Lyft, where in some communities, not at all, there was a pain point because there was no source of transportation. Is that an example? And it creates this whole economy around it. Is that an example or is that just a little bit better and not a market making opportunity? Well, I think what that did, uh, it, it was a market creating opportunity. It was because they created, they, for, for many people, what Uber and Lyft are now competing with is not necessarily cabs but it was getting your friends to drive you to the airport or taking the subway or walking. They created a product or service that was affordable and accessible for people, you know, from their mobile phone. They, they made that whole experience uh, easy for people to choose over all other alternatives. And the alternative that Uber and Lyft were competing with initially was not necessarily cabs, you know, which might seem the obvious thing. It was, am I driving my car in today or not? Am I actually going to even go to this thing or not? I'm going to leave early because I don't want to have too many drinks and have to worry about driving home. All of those things are factoring in. So they were creating a, a, a market that was for the, all of those problems people were struggling with rather than simply cab or not cab. It was far beyond that. And what Uber and Lyft, I think, did extremely well is made the, they understood the struggle, what people were trying to achieve, all of those things that make it a hard decision to stay late to the party or not drive my car into downtown Boston today because I want to have that. I want to be able to get out quickly, but Oh my gosh, I have to think of parking and the cost and how bad will traffic be. They thought of all of the elements of the experience and then they created a business model that, that enabled us to have all of the comfort of from our phone 
hitting, you know, calling it when we needed it, seeing who the driver was, taking the sort of weirdness of getting out of a cab and the fear of getting into a cab and the fear of that uh, out of the equation completely. I can wait inside till it comes. I know who it's going to be. I can let people know that I'm in this car now and this is how I'll be. I don't have to take cash out. They created a really good experience that made that both affordable and accessible for people. So that's a, that, that is a good recent example of, of a market creating innovation. There's some. Uh, I recognize lots of people saying there's some other complexities, but that's okay. There's a market creating opportunity. All right. So there's a gap in the market, an opportunity to do something better, and this is the initial starting point. The gap sort of comes out of a struggle, not a small improvement over what we already have, but a pain point, something that actually isn't really working. We have to make it affordable, accessible. We have to look at the whole value proposition so that we make it work in this market and in this economy. Are there any other principles? Um, well, I guess thinking about being open to where you see the opportunity, you see an opportunity where we, where we see what we call non-consumption. So it's very easy to look at an existing market, you know, uh, landline cu- uh, phone customers in, in Africa, for example, and then sort of build your estimated case on how many people can we, if there are 5,000 landline customers and we get 10% of that market, okay, is that, is that a market for us? What we're saying is don't, don't use that as your benchmark, who are the existing customers. We're looking for non-consumers, people who are not buying or using any product or service at all because there isn't anything that's affordable and accessible to them. So you're actually starting to identify and doing your best to quantify and estimate where non-consumption exists because that's the real opportunity. There isn't anything that you're competing with. You're competing with nothing, literally. The option is nothing. I can do nothing to solve my problem right now or nothing very good. I will not buy any product or service. So the principle of identifying Non-consumption opportunities is really key to a market creating innovation because then what you're, do, what you're doing is identifying what's exactly right for those people, not trying to compare yourself to something that already exists that they're not choosing to buy anyway. You want, right. you want to create a product for them so that they go from being non-consumers to consumers of your product or service. Okay. All right, I get how this one is going to go. It's reminding me of, um, you know, the folks that talk about the Shark Tank and so on, and they are, um, as seen on TV, I had a guest for who runs the marketing for that one a, few, a year ago, I guess, and he says, any product where you can say there's a problem that isn't being solved, and you can show me how your product will solve it, so it's a visual, but it's a problem that's not solved, is one that's going to work, Um on those kind of TV opportunities. Now, I stretched a field from what your intention here is, Karen, about generating prosperity, but there's a common ground with there's a need that no one knows how to fix, and I can fix it for you. That seems to be the, the key. Um, I you started You started this work uh, looking at emerging economies, countries, helping lift them out of poverty, or generate prosperity is a better word for it. I presume you also believe it applies to large companies as much as it does to emerging economies. I do. I think what what we're identifying in the book is the power of market-creating innovations. It's where growth lies. It's where the opportunity for real growth lies. And it doesn't, you know, you can be a small entrepreneur or a big company, you still need to see where does opportunity lie. And what too often happens is that existing companies um, sort of take two t- typical paths to new innovation, to trying to figure out where they can get new revenue from. They do what we call efficiency innovations. So they try to figure out how to make their product or service um, a, a little more economically, save a little bit of money, uh, figure out how to you know, outsource your factory to Mexico, get your labor costs down. So you free up capital, which in theory you can then reinvest in the business. So that's a typical way, um, an efficiency innovation or what we call sustaining innovations, which is you come up with new versions of your product or service. You add some bells and whistles and colors. You, know, you, you look at how many times you upgrade your mobile phone. Every upgrade is a sustaining innovation. You're already a mobile phone customer. You own one. They want to keep you. They want to get a little more money from you. They maybe want you to trade in, but they're not going to materially shift the numbers of, of customers they have. They're just going to keep them and hopefully keep some revenue coming in from them. Those are the two typical paths that companies use to create new growth opportunities, and they're important, and they're good basics, 
but those do not typically lead to a blockbuster new idea. They're not a brand new, they haven't created a brand new market. So those give you predictable good growth. But if you want really the potential for something really high and new, you have to think about creating a new market. That's the third type. So our idea is that what we're, what we're demonstrating is that the power of these market-creating innovations can play an enormous role in developing an economy. But at the core is still the idea that this is where growth lies. You have to look at the market differently to see this real growth opportunity. If you only focus on efficiency and sustaining innovations, you're going to grow in a nice predictable way, but it's not going to be the sort of blockbuster growth that we're, I'm guessing your investors want you to have. Yeah, and the kind of things that sustain the company into the future and the kind of things that sort of catapult your career and build an entrepreneurial firm and all the good stuff that we would actually like to be able to talk about and lift a lot of people with you along the way. Um, Do you have any advice about how to go about thinking about these market-creating opportunities? Well, I would definitely, again, we suggest always that you you look for uh, pain points, but there are ways to look for, for pain points. And you can even... From an existing company's perspective, you can even sort of get some clues from your own customers. You can look at customers that are using your product or service in in really unusual ways. They're doing something that it wasn't intended to do, but you're trying to figure out um, how, they're trying to figure out how to, to wedge it to solve their problem or solution. A good example of this would be the company that uh, Intuit, the company that had Quicken um, initially found a lot, which is, which is uh, personal financial software, initially found people using it in really convoluted, twisted ways to try to do the, the accounting for their small businesses. And uh, Scott Cook, the, the chairman and founder of Intuit, told us that for years they ignored that as this weird aberration. Why are people doing that when we know there's good software on the market that's very sophisticated accounting software for businesses? Why would they use our Quicken, which is designed for people in small ways for um, their, their business books. But after a while, they realized they were hearing the drumbeat of a pain point. There are people who did not want to have to use sophisticated accounting software. It was too, it was too complex. It was not what they wanted to do. They wanted an easy solution that was affordable and accessible uh, to solve their problem of keeping track of the books for their small business. And they finally, like on, created QuickBooks, which became the market leader in six months. And I think it was that he, Scott would describe it as uh, half the functionality at twice the price. They were able to create a premium product because it was exactly what customers wanted. They would pay more, actually, for that product um, because it did what they wanted to do with less stress and hassle than the very elaborate, complicated, you know, to the T, just like an accountant would do software, but that wasn't what they wanted. The pain point was, I have to get my brother-in-law to do the books for me, or I'm sticking all of these receipts to the folder and I have to go through them at some point. This is just too much for me. Uh, I can't possibly contemplate a sophisticated software program. I need something that's easy. And that's where QuickBooks came from. And QuickBooks has been a great success ever since. Absolutely. An amazing success along the way. People who do this well, is there anything unique about them? People who spot these kind of market-making opportunities? I think I think it's just they have different lenses on. They they look for they're looking for problems to solve from a different way. They don't go in with preconceived notions. They look for again uh, people that are doing something unusual with your product. They look for strange workarounds. People that are working around a problem in some way. Uh, they they think about themselves, the problems that they themselves struggle with. You look in the mirror and think, what what do I wish I could do better? Um, you, you look for clues where pe- people are used to looking at the existing market and trying to, to do better than that. The existing customers, they ask leading questions. They kind of go in with assumptions. I think if you put the lenses on of, I am really looking for struggles because in the struggles, I will find opportunity. I think that's just a different perspective on how you begin to see opportunity. Well. That would dramatically change the way we do customer focus groups, the way we think about the next step of the innovation. I can just imagine starting an offsite now instead of saying, what else can we do? How about starting with what struggles are out there in the world that our customers are facing or just what struggles are out there in the world? Just that would be a dramatically different way to go about doing it. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. The key with market creating innovations, when you think about that question that you said is that is a good way to think about it, is also thinking about those struggles in the context of the local community, the people who use them or will use them. What are they struggling with? 
in Nigeria. That's specific to that community. What are they struggling with in rural America? They can't be in the abstract. They always have to be in the context of the people who would be your prospective customers. So thinking about that, not from an abstract, faraway perspective, but really sort of being, imagining almost a documentary in your mind of what was the person doing before, during, and after the struggle? What is it surrounding? What's that person's life like? Thinking of the person sort of wholly. Um, so not just what are they functionally trying to accomplish, but what are they trying to accomplish from a emotional perspective and even a social perspective? All of those things come into understanding fully what the opportunity might be. Okay. Is there a roadmap for doing this, Karen? Do you guys outline this in your book? We, we do, we, and um, I would actually recommend some other work as well, but we, we use the theory of jobs to be done, which is one of Clay's theories on understanding how customers make the choices that they make. Um, so we advocate really thinking about what you're trying to solve, the, the way a person is trying to hire, that's the language we use, a product or a service to solve that problem for them, to do that job for them, thinking, thinking of it from that perspective. What am I going to hire to help me solve this problem? And it, typically, if you're hiring something new to help you solve a problem, you're firing something. So you could be firing doing nothing. You could be firing a workaround. You could be firing a product or service that doesn't serve your needs. You have to make sure that what you are considering offering them does it all better than whatever they need to, to fire because that, that's a big leap for people to go from whatever they're doing now to what to wanting to take your product or service. So you need to make sure that, that yours is so clearly better that they're willing to take that leap. It strikes me, as always, with um, Clayton and your work, it requires uh, suspending the way you typically think about it and coming at this at a completely different angle. Um, And it does sound like it's just straightforward and simple, but we're so used to thinking about this incremental growth, incremental improvement, do a little bit better than everybody else has done around me or a little bit cheaper that to really stop and look at the problem in a completely different way. And, uh, you know, you're right that that's where the real opportunities come from, the big growth opportunities. Okay, Karen, we're going to take a break. Can I give you you one other example that I just want to make sure I I, I rooted people in the understanding of why um, these opportunities are so different and how they can actually help develop an economy or lift an economy. I think that's important because those two pieces are, are really what I want people to walk away with understanding. Uh, if we think about um, insurance and you look at who gets insurance all over the world, the sort of league tables of where the most insurance products are, are bought and sold and the league tables of where the most awful natural disasters tend to happen geographically um, are completely opposite. So the people who have insurance statistically are the people who in theory might least need it. And the people who don't have insurance are, in theory, the people who probably most need it. You look at some of the really poor countries where um, a typhoon or a floods or, or a drought would, you know, could, really, it could really harm people individually in the economy. So but for years, people don't, haven't really thought about the prospect of selling insurance to poor people in poor countries because how could they possibly afford it? There's a company called MicroInsure that recognized that struggle, that pain point for so many people being hospitalized in, in a really poor economy can bankrupt someone. Statistically, uh, in, in so many communities in, in India and in parts of Africa, if somebody has to go into the hospital, uh, they may come out bankrupt because they've had to sell everything to be able to afford the care or treatment or get any care or treatment at all because public services are, are so awful. Um, so this company sort of figured out that maybe they could create a business model for something they call microinsurance, that they could sell people um, some tiny amount of insurance that would be just enough to cover that kind of situation. Or if they have a market stall with that their livelihood is dependent on and a fire sweeps through it, their microinsurance payouts and microinsurance payments. And they figured out how to offer this by reconceiving the business model. So it's not you pay us a premium and, and we'll you know, cover you for X months. They figured out how to make temporary and then extending uh, insurance coverage a bonus uh, that cell phones offer their customers, so mobile phone companies offer their customers when they buy more minutes or they top up minutes. So if you buy an extra X minutes, we will throw in some fundamental level of low-level microinsurance for a month. doesn't cost you anything except for that you've bought the minutes. They've been able to figure out that kind of business model, which completely changes it and yet is still profitable for everybody involved. It's now offered tens of millions of people some kind of insurance in in India and in parts of Africa that they wouldn't otherwise have had. So the ability to completely reconceive what you think you're selling, 
how you make it make sense, but yet it's solving a really big struggle has probably meant the difference between full bankruptcy and, and terrible life getting them back on their feet and the ability to survive some kind of a, a, a setback or disaster in many poor communities. I think that's a great example of a market creating innovation that will be lifting people out of poverty. Great. I, you can see that one as well. And it strikes me when you say this that a lot of our entrepreneurial firms are giving us not a new solution, just a new way to do the same solution. So we um, automate it or we put it on the mobile phone or we put an app or we different payment system. But this example of the micro insurance is a completely different way of thinking about insurance and how you acquire insurance and where you use insurance. And that's exciting. I think that's what everybody gets excited about. All right, Karen, great examples. My guest today, Karen Dillon. Um, Karen is the former editor of Harvard Business Review, but more importantly for today, the co-author of three books with Clayton Christensen, the one we've been talking about, The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty. But there is also Competing Against Luck, the story of innovation and customer choice. And more importantly, the one we're going to talk about when we come back from the break, which is How Will You Measure Your Life?, And we'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Karen Dillon, and we've been talking about one of Karen's books that she's co-authored with Clayton Christensen called The Prosperity Paradox. And after five times, I finally learned to say that without stumbling on it. I think, Karen, the thing that strikes me the most out of all that we've been talking about is exactly what you say, which is it's about asking different questions. It's about not looking at the incremental growth, but looking at where there's struggle and leaning into that struggle and listening to that struggle, not ignoring it, and that that becomes the place, the impetus for growth. But it's also making it local, the local economy, the local community, the way the locals are actually using it, sort of on the ground, making it acceptable and accessible and affordable. And then the last one, I love this point about you're looking at people who are not currently consuming your products or in your product market space, products or services, um, and that there's opportunities there once you break open those eyes. 
prick open your eyes. Um, I want to shift this, though, because I want to take a personal slant on this topic, and I want to talk about this whole notion of innovation and breaking down barriers and apply that to careers and to life in general. Um, So explain a little bit about how you see this and I think a little bit about your own personal journey. Sure. So uh, my own personal journey intersects with the, with these ideas. So let me tell you a little bit about that because I think it'll explain it pretty well. Uh, so a little, you know, almost a decade ago, but maybe eight years ago, I was the editor of Harvard Business Review magazine, a job that I loved and threw myself into and, and, and was happy to have. And I was one particular spring morning, I was just looking for an extra article to uh, fill a double issue we were putting together. And I was really trying to find something efficient and quick uh, that could that could be in the double issue that would come out in the summer and then move on. And in, in looking around, coming up with ideas, I had heard that Clayton Christensen, Harvard Business School professor, had given a talk to the soon-to-be graduating class at their request that they had found incredibly moving and inspiring. Uh, and without knowing more than that, I actually just called him and said, can I come over and figure out how to turn your talk into some kind of an essay for Harvard Business Review and then click I'll have my extra article. So I didn't really think more about it. He said yes, turned up with a little digital recorder in his office, and we started to talk. And what we talked about was business theory, which sounds incredibly boring, but it was, it was mind-altering for me as it had been for the students. It was understanding what causes what to happen. And the reason that was so interesting to students was Clay himself had been a Harvard Business School graduate, I think class of 1979, and as he later went on to become a professor and, and sort of built his career there. He started to notice that fewer and fewer of his own classmates came back to the reunions, which are a very big thing at Harvard Business School. It's part of how they keep everybody feeling networked and connected, and they really sort of roll out the red carpet. Fewer and fewer of his classmates came back, and those who came back seemed all too often not happy with their way their career had turned out, not happy with the way their personal life had turned out, and maybe kind of lacking passion and purpose in a way that he might have thought they would have when they were students together. And so what he and I talked about is how people who are high achievers are often hardwired to make choices that don't actually lead you in the long run to the path of being happy in your career, happy in your personal life, and feeling sort of personally fulfilled. Um, So the conversation that started in his office was the beginning of he and I working together on, on the book, How Will You Measure Life? But for me personally, it was a kind of, you know, lightning road to Damascus moment for me where I realized that I fell into the same category of people who are high achievers who kind of say all the right things and kind of do all the wrong things if they're going to see where the logical extension of how they're making all of the choices in their life will play out over the course of their lifetime. Uh, so I ended up completely retooling my career and my life so that I could actually make sure that my efforts and energy and resources personally went into the life that I wanted to lead, both personally and professionally, and not taking me down a path where I'd be the equivalent of some of his classmates who stopped coming back to the reunion because they weren't that happy with how their life had turned out. So that was the beginning of a really eye-opening experience for me of, incredibly enough, applying business theory to the choices we make in our life. So business theory, what causes what to happen? I love that. And then apply that to your personal life. How is it that we got in this place that nobody's particularly thrilled with? Not the unhappy sometimes, but just not what you wanted. Um, That's an interesting one, especially as I think about a group that I'm about to take through a similar process like this. So tell me about how you transform? How do you go about making sure that the choices you are making are leading to the right outcomes? Sure. So I'll talk about the career aspect first because I think this is one that's really easy to get caught up in, especially if you if you are a high achiever naturally. We're, we're drawn to the things that give us the fastest reward, right? The fastest return on investment of our time and energy. So that means that we like, we're drawn to the things that we can see the tangible payoff really quickly. A better job title, um, more money, a fancier office, being able to tell people at um, cocktail parties, you know, that we work for such and such company. And those things are all good things. They're not bad things. And I understand them. But those things are not the things that, that fuel us in the long run. Those are what we call hygiene factors. Those are things that, you know, on the surface can make you, they can help you be not unhappy in your job. 
but they're not the same thing as what we call intrinsic motivators, things that will actually make sure that you are happy and fulfilled in your job and in your career over the long run. And we all tend to, to think about and take and move jobs for hygiene factors, better title, better office, fancy perks, those kinds of things. And that can, that can make sure we're not unhappy, as you said, but that's not the same thing as making sure that we feel happy and fulfilled and, and we want to get out of bed every morning to go to, to, go to that job. And, and so I think people need to think about every career juncture, every career choice through that lens. You can lift the hygiene factors that come with this opportunity. That's okay. Are there enough there so that I don't feel unhappy with it? But what are the things that are going to make me actually feel motivated and happy in the long run? And those are different. Those are things like, do I respect the mission of this organization? Am I respected by my, by my boss and my peers? Am I given the chance to grow and stretch and change? The things that make you want to do work sort of can all, the, the, the hygiene factors can only sustain you for so long. You have to feel like you're growing, you care about the work you're doing, it has purpose, and then you're working in an environment that is sort of emotionally healthy and supportive of you, that people are growing and supporting each other. Those things, intrinsic factors, make a huge difference in the long run over time. It's the reason why so many people are drawn to not-for-profit or to be teachers or to be in the military. They don't make more money than most people. They have a lot of stresses and struggles, but the intrinsic motivators for those kinds of careers are really high. And I think all of us could make better choices if we at least think about both the hygiene factors, the good things that will make us not unhappy, but what are the list of things we think this job offers me that are intrinsic motivators so I will want to get out of bed every morning, you know, after the first six months wear off. And I think that's a really important thing to take into account when you're making job choices. Yeah. Boy, I would like to instill this in every single client that I've ever worked with um, who's looking at how do I build my career, because I think you're absolutely right. We get so stuck, particularly younger people get so stuck on how fast I'm moving up the curve and that my worth is my value to the company. My long-term value is how fast I can move or how much money I can make. Um, and it doesn't lead to happiness at the end of the day. Aaron Hurst, who was on our show. Trap for, for, for young people, they see it quickly. That's the fastest, you know, it's, it's the easiest way they feel productive and they get, they get feedback on their success. So it's really hard to, to wean yourself off of that. But it, it, it's, you, that's, that's just taking you, you know, 90 degrees away from where you want to go if you're only using that as the basis for making the choices in your career. And that plays out in the long term in really bad ways. Right. Well, it gives you bragging rights on Instagram, I guess, or Facebook or whatever your social media is, as I understand that sort of part of what is exciting, but it still doesn't lead to fulfillment. I was going to say Aaron Hurst, who was on our show just a few weeks ago, says that fulfillment, which is what we're really talking about, comes from having relationships that you really care about and having opportunities to grow. And Lauren, those are the two. There's a third one I'm probably missing, but those are the two that stick with me. This notion of respect, exactly as you said, for the people I work with and they for me, as well as an opportunity to grow and learn. Um, I think those are some powerful factors. All right. So that's the whole notion about the career to be sure that we're asking how do we get to where we want to be or what causes the things that lead to, you know, less happiness, I guess I should say this, this is the way to say it. Are, can you, are there other examples for how you apply this business theory model to making sure we get to where we want to be in life? Sure. So another, I'll do another one for career, and then we can talk about life as well. But there's another important thing to recognize, especially for younger listeners, um, is that if you think about from a company perspective, the vast majority of companies um, that are successful end up being successful with a different strategy than they started with. It's just so un- rare and unlikely for a company to know exactly the right thing to do from the beginning, map it all out and become a big success story and go on to be you know, a, a company we read about and admire. Most companies get there through trial and error, what we call emergent strategy. They, they read the roadmap as they're going. They might have to take a left turn. They, they, they adjust their strategy based on the reality of what they're finding. The true, the true comparison with our careers is the same, is that 
too often people think I need to have a five-year plan. I have to do this and this and this, or I want to be in that job in this amount of time. And they get blinded to that path. And it can mean that you're actually walking down the wrong road without knowing it. You have to be, especially when you're developing your career, open to emergent opportunities. Um, A famous example of a company getting it wrong and then figuring out how to get it right is the reason we all know Honda so well in America is not because it came in at the top of the market as an excellent you know, exporter and a manufacturer of cars. Honda tried to break into the market in America first with little motorcycles, what are known as super cubs. Uh, and they were, they were little and crappy, and they, were, they initially thought they could compete with American motorcycle manufacturers. Um, and the, the big ones, the open road, Harley-Davidson, they wanted a piece of that American market. But the ones that they had made in Japan for a Japanese market were small and sort of more designed for city and running around. But they just thought, well, we'll get this product or service in. And they had virtually no customers for months and months and months. And they, are we going to even be able to afford this? We can't send even more motorcycles over for, for it to be in the showroom. But then one of its employees, frustrated with no business in, in California, started taking the crappy little motorcycle up into the dirt hills of Hollywood and started riding it around. And it actually did really well in that environment. And people started noticing it. And eventually somebody who was a buyer for Sears said, no, that is really cool. Maybe we could sell that in our sporting goods department. That was nothing like what Honda had imagined they were going to be doing as a strategy for breaking into America. They wanted to compete head on with the big motorcycles and then come in with cars after that. But luckily they were open-minded enough to the idea of this is an emergent opportunity. Let's change our strategy instead of doing that. Let's, let's go for creating this market. Uh, and that's, that's the beginning of how Honda came to be one of the biggest manufacturers in the United States. The same is true for people. You have to be open to emergent opportunities until you're sure, until you have it right. So having a really focused, no variation career plan too early in your career means you may be missing what could be amazing opportunities to grow, stretch, and find an intrinsic path to happiness. I think that's a really important thing to, to know. You don't have to be perfect. You have to experiment and get there, and you'll know when you've got it right. Even when you get it right, things shift. There's new author opportunities that emerge that you have to be open to. It's interesting, Karen, because I must ask 100 people, 100 very senior, very successful executives in a year, tell me about your career path. Tell me about the turning points in your career. Tell me about the successes and tell me about some of the failures. I've only ever met less than five people in decades of doing this who had a career plan and they followed it. I can think of two. I think it's- it's very rare, and I think you just have to realize that that's okay. I mean, that's how that's yeah. how people become successful is they are open-minded to the opportunities that come there. When I came out of journalism school, I really wanted to work for Rolling Stone or do something really cool. I mean, that was in my head. That was the only dream version of a job that I was going to do. One of my professors forwarded me a job reference for what ended up being my first job. I worked for a magazine called The American Lawyer, which was about the business of law. That could not sound more boring to me as a student, a journalism student. And if you had told me my career was going to be in business journalism, I would have felt like, oh, I'm never going to have my dream. It was the most amazing environment ever. And it met all of those intrinsic motivators. It ended up being a fantastic job. And I think if you asked most successful people, tell me about the best job you ever had. I'm guessing very few people will talk about the name of the company, the prestige of their, you know, their office or their salary. They'll talk about somebody who believed in them when they were given a chance at a young age to to stretch and grow in something that it was a big leap. The accomplishments they felt with colleagues, those are the things that in the end really make a difference to us. And I think being open minded to where you're going to find that and recognizing that those things are as important or more important as the, the, the things you might write in the boxes on your resume, that's a much better path to finding happiness right. in your career. Well, these same executives, and these are very, very senior people in my client companies who will say, if their number one advice on career is if you are not passionate about what you're doing, get out. And yeah. I would add to that, if you're not, you're not going to be great at it anyway. So, you know, life, and there's competition out there. Okay, Karen, I know we got like five minutes maybe left and you have written this wonderful book about um, office politics or compiled edition but what I'm most interested in is you have an article on your website karendillon.net that says how do you say no at work please tell us how do you say no in four minutes or less it's hard (laughs) <laughs> in, in that quick time. It is hard. I think you start with recognizing that you can say no, 
but you can say no in context and in circumstances. You, you don't want to be known as the person who says no to everything, not the go-to person, but you can say no in context. So, so as I, I as a manager and I as a person who's been an employee and a worker realize that I need to convey to my manager that I care about the work, I care about the struggle that we're having together in work, and I want to be helpful but I need to say no in a way that demonstrates here's what I need to focus my resources on. Or if I take that thing on, I don't think I'll be able to do X and Y and Z right. You say no in a way that's not because you're offended or put upon or it's not your turn and ask somebody else. You say no in connecting with your manager or your colleague whoever's asking you that you understand why they're asking, but you have these other things going on that are equally or more important. Do you agree? And if you agree, I would like to focus on that but the next time come to me and I'll plan better or even go back to them with a plan for I can't do that, but I'd be willing to do this part of it or can I enlist so-and-so to help me? People are looking for, your colleagues, your managers are looking for people who are on board, they're part of the team and they are helping you solve problems as you're going along and if your answers reflect both of those things, I think you'll find it's much easier to say no sometimes. We all have to take a hit sometimes, take one for the team but sometimes when what's, what's at risk is you're doing work that, that matters, quality work, or you're at the point where you're really going to break from burnout, I think it's important to be honest but upbeat with your colleagues and boss to say no, thinking that you might be able to help them solve the problem a different way with some suggestion. Strikes me we go right back to where we started from, which is looking at the struggle in a different way and thinking about an alternative plan. It strikes me that that comes right back around. Karen, fabulous conversation. Sarah, you were about to say something. No, I was going to say, it does. That's a perfect way to think of it. You're thinking about what that, what that job your manager or colleague is trying to do, and you're helping them. You're helping them think about solving it in a different, an affordable and accessible way in terms of your work. How can, how can we solve this together in some way that doesn't involve me doing this all by myself? Right. Excellent. Excellent. Karen, it's been a thrill to have you on the show. Great conversations. Lots of fabulous advice on a range of topics. Again, my guest today is Karen Dillon, and we've been talking about the prosperity paradox, and we've also been talking about how you measure your life. I think the thing that strikes me out of this one, Karen, when I look across all of it, I think there are two pieces. One is to look at where the struggle is in the market, and how am I going to find a way to make it accessible and affordable for people who are not consuming. That one really strikes me as interesting. And the second one is to be thoughtful about the choices I make and where that's leading and are they the choices, the hygiene choices, or are they the ones that are really going to keep me excited six months, 12 months, 18 months from now, rather than just take the obvious answers? You got it. All right. It's been a pleasure. Um, Please join us again next week for another episode in how to get out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.